Do you have what it takes to play golf? Well, let's find out this week on the Upper Every Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 114 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, back with you once again after, <laughs> unfortunately, a pretty long break uh, to finally talk with you about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So, yeah, it is uh, getting to the end of February 2019. The last show came out in October 2018. I do <laughs> certainly... Um, apologize for that uh that big delay that big gap there uh you know there's there's a lot of stuff that that you know i could go and probably do an entire show about uh or an entire talk i don't know if we, it would be a show about you know everything that's sort of gone down between then and before then and and now but basically you know a lot of stuff with uh things ramping up at work and uh you know a lot of stuff going on at the house and uh um baby um toddler um two-year-old whatever you want to call her uh certainly does take a take up a lot of my uh a lot of my time so just sort of fitting everything in uh had been pretty challenging over the past uh past little while plus sickness if you guys follow me on facebook uh i had a couple of uh minor but still uh emergency room visits uh personally so uh you know just a whole heck of stuff going on everything's cool nothing nothing's you know nothing wrong nothing bad uh, i know some people when i posted about the doctor stuff got a little bit concerned but uh no need to worry. So anyways, uh, all that to say, I am finally back. I got the show all prepped and researched and, and done to the point that I, uh, you know, to the quality that I like to do these things too. So unfortunately that took a bit longer than it usually does, but I am back. Show is back. We're going to talk some games. So let's jump into it because of the, you know, gap in time. Uh, we certainly have some mail to go through. So let's get to it and uh, apologies for those of you who sent mail so long ago you may have forgotten so uh here's gonna be a nice little uh trip down memory lane our first email comes from i will want to say it is pronounced l'oraison bonjour joe et tous vos auditeurs i'm a frenchie who discovered your podcast in the beginning of this year and after listening to the entire run i have to say it's great no surprises here right to introduce myself somewhat my first pc was a 486 dx266 bought at the end of 1994. I distinctly recall it came with some games, the box version of Pacific Strike by Origin, which I still own, a shareware collection CD with Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, Jill of the Jungle, and other games of the era. And to my surprise, the disc of Rebel Assault was in the tray when I opened it for the first time. Uh, the first games I bought for it were The Seventh Guest and Cryo's Dune. Uh, both came in a Telestar uh, double, or sorry, Telstar double value games compilation box and what a compilation it was. They started my love for adventure games, strategy games, flight sims, and anything Star Wars or Dune related. Of course, it wasn't the first system I played on. We had a Philips Odyssey 2, or Video Pack, as it was called here uh, at home. I also played on C64, Amiga 500, Atari ST machines, at other people's homes before having that PC. Uh, my first experiences 
of PC gaming included Prince of Persia, maybe on a monochrome monitor, and a golf game too on the same computer. I don't recall which golf games it was. Uh, Your next podcast will certainly be of interest. After getting rid of my 486 due to legal shenanigans with the shop it was bought from, that shop uh, story is interesting on its own, but outside the scope of my email, I got an Acer Aspire for a short while, a blue-green wavy design, almost all-in-one, with a Pentium 133 MHz and no L2 cache, so uh, that one quickly was returned to, the sh- to its shop too before I settled on a Pentium 200 in 96 or 97, I think, with a Matrox Mystique graphics card, a real Sound Blaster 32, and a godly Neck 17-inch monitor. Then came the 3D accelerated games, and Unreal was one of them. I first heard about it in a French PC gaming magazine called PC Fun, uh, then saw a rolling demo in a big retail store, or maybe it was a playable demo, not sure now. Anyway, I, ha- I had to have it at home, so I bought it, lamented the lack of 3D acceleration of my PC, and decided to buy a Matrox M3D for it. Good choice, I know. Unreal supported the PowerVR chip, so all was well, but of course some games didn't, and I was left with a graphical mess like missing shadows or absence of fog or uh, other glitches in those, the joys of not getting a 3D effects when it was supported in every 3D game at the time. I don't know if you take suggestions for games to play, but here are some anyways. Uh, The first Settlers game by Blue Byte, not the second one, not any of its sequels, but the first one that is not on GOG. Uh, You can buy a version working on Windows 7 and later on Uplay, but other than that, either look them up on eBay or an old boxed uh, copy. Any games edited are developed by Dongleware, such as Ogsid, Bolo, or Tubular Worlds uh, in order. A sort of puzzle game, a breakout Arkanoid clone with amazing art style and gameplay, and a top-down horizontal shoot-em-up. Uh, you have to check them out. If you care to check out the French gaming magazine scene, head to uh, bandonoirmagazines.org. I provided scans of many of the early PC fun issues there, along with ISO images of their cover disc. Uh, the first issue had a playable demos of Under a Killing Moon and Wing Commander 3, and the shareware version of One Must Fall 2097. <laughs> Wacky Wheels and Krypton Egg, quite a good Arkanoid clone, so I sank many hours into playing those. Oh, the good old days. That website has many, many more French magazines from the 80s and 90s, a cool place to lose track of time. Okay, it was a bit longer uh, than anticipated, so keep blogging and don't go over to the upper memory block area. Uh, cheers from Paris, Lorraine. P.S. You can watch my name in English or use your Quebecois accent. It's all good. Well, I did use my Quebecois accent, so hopefully that uh, that is all good. And that's cool. I'm still, you know, um, combing through CGW archive uh, very slowly, making my way through those. So, you know, I may cut over to AbandonedWareMagazines.org and check out some uh, some French magazines because, hey, I grew up in Quebec, so, you know, je parle français. So, uh, you know, I know I know all you people from France, Lorraine, I know uh, Alima. <laughs> I don't speak real French. I apologize, but, uh, you know, I, I can make do when I have to. So th- thanks for that. Amazing, amazing memories. And of course, you know, I've said it a million times, the 486 DX266 is sort of like my my holy grail of, of computers. That was the one that I, I have the best the best memories of. It was the first, you know, kind of real performance machine that we had. And, uh, you know, I definitely, uh, definitely, definitely, definitely enjoy it. All right. Well, thanks. Next, we have Patrick. Patrick writes, Hi, Joe. Just wanted to say I'm really enjoying your podcast. Found it a couple of days ago and immediately went to your Wing Commander episodes. It was the first computer game I ever bought with my own money way back in the day. Every once in a while, I play a round or two to get a healthy dose of 90s nostalgia. I've even started to work on building some hardware from the era. I'm piecing together a 386.25, and I've got a working 486.100 that's in beautiful condition. If I could make a game review request or two, it would be 
Ultima 7 or Diablo. U7 was the first RPG I ever played, and Diablo had me up for many late nights during high school. Thanks very much for making a great show. I'm still working my way through the backlog, and I'm very much looking forward to future episodes. Cheers, Patrick. Well, Patrick, this came through a while back, so uh, uh, hopefully uh, you've continued working your way through. And, um, you know, Diablo is definitely on the... uh, on the the docket uh you know i've only really covered two blizzard games lost vikings and uh and the warcraft series ultima is one of those scary these scary scary series for me to cover because you know these big rpg series ultima uh even like might and magic uh you know a bunch of stuff like that all those kind of D gold box games i wasn't a big rpg player back in the in the day so I sort of would have to go through, I'd have to figure out how to play, how to cover. Like the Ultima series I think would be in chunks because I think like one to three are sort of like one way and then they they switch around. So, you know, maybe you guys can make some suggestions on how I could cover something like Ultima because the games A, in and of themselves are, are very big and B, there's so damn many of them. I don't know how I could, you know, I do like to play through them to some degree and then, uh, you know, be able to talk about them. And I just think I'd be talking about them for forever, frankly. So, uh, yeah, but thanks for those. And, uh, yeah, maybe some Blizzard pretty soon. And, yeah. All right, next, <laughs> we just heard from Patrick. So now let's hear from Pat. Pat writes, Dear Joe, I'm a longtime UMB listener and have been a Patreon supporter for a while. Why, thank you. I'm always happy to see a new UMB cast appear in my podcast library. And I've been watching the occasional research video recently, too. I thought that this time around, I might contribute something to the UMB mailbox. This actually ended up actually being really long and not very coherent, but I'm guessing it will be way too long. So I've included a break about halfway down so you can just use the second half or you can feel free to not use any of it. Well, too bad I'm using all of it. Perhaps it is a distortion of retrospect and a misreading of the time which I was only a child, but uh, the DOS and Windows 3.x computing era, the earlier part of UMB's focus period, has always seemed to me to be a very particular moment. The 80s were an era of business. Reagan and Thatcher on both sides of the Atlantic, a liberalizing, deregulating labor government in my own country of Australia. Uh, Greed was good. The Berlin Wall came down. Western economies were reforming. And along with the economy, a culture of happy, capitalistic, inevitably or happy capitalism inevitably reigned until about the time of the G8 protests in Seattle in 1999. In computing, power was expanding rapidly and personal computers, though still expensive, were moving into homes and smaller businesses, perhaps partly because they were being cycled out of offices and schools. Computers were indispensable business tools, but they were also vehicles for entertainment, and for many, they were both. In my view, the dual use of personal computers meant the market for PC was different to the market for consoles, and the zeitgeist meant the software and development culture was also different. When I went to my friends' houses to play consoles, I played games. When I used our 386 or 486 or K62 at home, I played games, but I was also exposed to another grown-up world of, of uh, tech specs and of business. So many late 80s and early 90s games seem to me to contain fourth wall breaking references and so many of them are specific references to software development and the business of computers. Sierra springs to mind as a regular offender, but so many games had a boss key which would dump uh, the player to a DOS or to DOS or a fake spreadsheet. So there's a cut there and uh, actually I, and uh, the, I use the second half in the second part. So uh, thanks Pat for, for that first half of your email and uh, you know, you're, you're totally right and 
you know, like one of the things like, you know, I had consoles, I had a Nintendo, I think we had an Atari that was, I was a bit too young to really appreciate. Uh, we had an NES, a super NES skip generation, then to PS2, uh, PS2, Xbox 360. And now I'm sitting with a PS4. So, you know, I've always had consoles, but you know, despite having those, yeah, we always obviously had, uh, PCs. And one of the things that I used to do, uh, you know, we used to have Microsoft works. So not Microsoft word or, you know, Microsoft office, but Microsoft works, which was like basically a different office suite. And, uh, the works had these very, very detailed tutorials that you could go through to, and that would basically show you step-by-step and allow you to practice you know, basically how to use all the different tools. So whether it was the, the word processor, so works had, it was basically, it had all the, the pieces of Microsoft office, including an, a, a bit called communications, which was basically a fax program where you could take any document you had built in works and send it over a modem. So, you know, I, as, as sort of a game when I was, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, maybe even a little older than that, but not very much. Uh, I would go through these tutorials for Microsoft works and, you know, learn how to use it. So, so I definitely agree that, that, uh, computers at the time were sort of this cross section between entertainment and business. And even as a little kid, I was exposed to that business aspect of it. And, you know, by the time I was able to get into like computer class in, uh, in elementary school. So yeah, I must've been like seven or eight. Uh, I already knew how, how this stuff works and you know every all the other kids got to work in i can't remember what it was some like really basic uh word processor and i said well i know how to use works and the computer teacher was like oh you can go on the big computer and use it for real so yeah it was uh it was definitely interesting all right next up uh i actually got an itunes review i don't get them very often so when i do i like to to uh to uh what's the word promote them here or <laughs> display them here because I'm proud when I got iTunes reviews. So please drop them if you feel like it. And this one is from Digi999 from the UK. And it's a one sentencer, but uh, I think it's very high praise. It says the presenter's encyclopedic knowledge of DOS games, as well as his superb presentation style is easily comparable to LGR. That's lazy game reviews. Wow. Comparison to lazy game reviews. That's very impressive. Thank you. Digi999. And then we've got one more and then a voicemail. So to finish off the um, the mailbag, uh, the me reading the mailbag part, we've got one from Josh. And Josh writes, Joe was listening to the Baldur's Gate episode amidst my recent amidst my recently undertook quest to hotbox your whole episode lineup, and you casually mentioned BBSs, which implied you're having been into them at the time. Being a gamer, this leads me to assume you'd also be familiar with top BBS door game with the top BBS door game Lord. Have you thought about doing an episode on that? The fact I'm listening to multiple episodes a day says it better, but great effing <laughs> work on the pod, man. Easily the best DOS game pod I've found. I'm recommending it left and right to fellow nerds of the era. My favorite to date uh, is Master of Orion, perhaps, but it was also a tangent you went on about manipulating the autoexec bat and config sys files to do your bidding. I almost had a nostalgia overload listening to it. Best, Josh Froland from NYEH Entertainment. Well, thank you. Josh, and I do love my tangents. <laughs> and sometimes those tangents, while I'm prepping the show, I sort of think of, I do have to do some research on some of these tangents. That one I think may have been just a, a tangent tangent. But sometimes, you know, I get into like how VGA works or memory management or stuff like that. And those tangents are actually sort of like semi-planned because I actually have to do research to remind myself how that stuff works. And yes, 
I am heavily familiar with Lord or Legend of the Red Dragon, which I did play uh, on uh, at least two different BBSs over the years. And um, yeah, I was a pretty big BBSer. Uh, played a lot of door games, various versions of uh, Solar Realms and Baron Realms Elite, Trade Wars 2002, Legend of the Red Dragon, uh, maybe one or two others, but those are the ones that certainly uh, pop into mind. Uh, if you want to have a, if you want me want to want to hear me talking about BBSs outside the context of this show, if you go way back to the first episode or first couple of episodes of uh, Square Waves FM podcast with my buddy Brian and uh, and his wife, also my friend Bianca, uh, we definitely talk about it quite a bit over there. But you know, I have sort of tossed around. Um, the concept of doing either a show about a specific BBS door game or maybe a, a BBS door game roundup where I do talk a bit about Lord and, and trade wars and, and all those. But, uh, yeah, I, I definitely had fun. That was sort of like the, uh, the proto version of, of, you know, internet gaming and multiplayer gaming and all that. So, uh, very, very, very cool. All right. Well, thanks Josh. And now let's end things off with a voicemail from my friend Raytheon, and he has been incredibly patient with me spacing these out. And unfortunately, since the episodes have been so spaced out, these have been spaced out as well. So take it away, Raytheon. Hey, Joe. Raytheon Hudson here from Expound Resurgence. Ah, I've been listening to your recent podcast. I'm still catching up, but man, am I enjoying those the uh, the Google Hangouts that you guys are having. <laughs> it's like I'm actually there with you. <laughs> ah, trolls is classic. Also... I've been wondering about something. You mentioned recently about the the cover art, specifically the box art of some games. Well, for me, I feel that when I look at the cover art of Sim Tower, I feel it shows a sense of achievement. For example, if you look at the just the picture on the front of Sim Tower on the CD, you get to see, oh, that's what I aim to do. That's the sort of tower I'm going to reach for literally reaching for the stars and hopefully getting as tall as to where you can actually see Santa Claus flying right past the tower at some point. It's kind of terrifying for me. My mind has now associated Santa Claus with bad news because every time in Sim Tower when I hear those three bells when Santa comes, all of my condominiums go on sale and I have to run around all over the place in the tower on the minimap trying to find all the condominiums and sell them again at a lower price. Frustrating, but that's fun. Ah, with that said, I feel that seeing your aim, seeing your end goal in a game is quite good when you just put it on the front cover. Like, uh, let's see... Star Trek Elite Force Voyager, you see your goal, you being part of a team. And as a game, games are not just telling a story, they're not just art that you dispose of, they are literally an experience. For example, have your parents ever told you, oh, I, I spent some time on Mars a while ago, the air was quite nice. No, we can never do that, well, not in our lifetime. But those of you who have played Doom, or maybe the recent Doom, or maybe Quake. Yeah, those games bring you to a pseudo-Mars or pseudo-whatever-alien area, and you can literally experience being in such an area. Pretty awesome. Uh, let's see. Oh, I'm 
I've got notes and I'm trying to remember what I had in mind a, f a few hours ago. So I'm literally going back to my notes. And I kind of feel that we're all historians, just like trolls. He's the Space Quest historian and we're all historians as to experiences that have been given to us. Not just games in quotation marks, I'm doing air quotation marks. These are not just games. These are literally lives, a lifetime spent, uh, the life of a character, which is quite amazing that they're giving us an experience. And considering the price they give us for certain games, it's pretty high value. Uh, well, enough with me ranting. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could review a very, very short game called Hoover, or Hover, depending on how you pronounce it. I encountered it on the Windows 95 and 98 install CD, and <laughs> I, I literally spent years enjoying that game, even though the levels were pretty much the same. There's only three generic levels. Uh, no, there's only three levels with varying designs, but the main, uh, the main premise of the game is capture the flag in a hover tank, and you don't get to shoot. I kind of feel that the recent remake was a bit too fast and it loses the sense of weight and let's say impatience that the previous game had. I know there's multiple modes in the 2015 remake, I think it's 2015, I'll check that on Wikipedia later. Yeah, the recent update for, uh, the recent, I would say, remastered edition of Hover is definitely a bit too fast for well, the experience that is meant to be. You're, you're racing the computer enemies for uh, capture the flag. But as a hover tank, you should feel a little bit heavy. And of course, there's the drift when you let go of the acceleration. And you should drift a little bit forward, which you should account for, which is good. Ah, back in the day, I used to play it so much that even my dad would enjoy watching me playing it. I used to get so good at dropping the walls directly in front of the enemies would try to ram me, but I mastered the ability to drop a wall directly on top of them, which would lock them for a few minutes <laughs> or seconds, depending on the actual performance of your computer. Ah, I've got one bit of curia left. Uh, maybe you could save this for another Google Hangout. I wonder if you and the Space Quest historian can check this out. Recently, you mentioned Maniac Mansion. And there was a character there who really took care of his hamster quite a lot. I was wondering, is this game an inspiration for the characters Minsk and Boo from Baldur's Gate? <laughs> I really love those guys, but you could never actually move Boo from the inventory slot because Minsk was very defensive about it. Anyway, I'll leave that with you now. This is Raytheon Hudson, and this is my favorite podcast in the Citadel. Well, thank you, Raytheon, and thank you for the Commander Shepard uh, plug of the podcast. I think I may snip that out <laughs> and uh, use that somewhere. But, uh, you know, hey, maybe maybe the, the hamster from Maniac Mansion is is the inspiration for Minskin Boo. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, really, really great memories, good observations. And, uh, yeah, you know, I do, I do think that uh, to some degree, I don't like saying that I'm a historian because I find that's, you know, 
and no, and no offense to trolls, absolutely. But I find calling myself a historian sort of, you know, belittles actual historians that have education and, you know, research history and publish papers and, you know, do real important work. This is just, I'm just a guy who likes games, who, you know, is good at using Google. And, uh, you know, so from that perspective, yes, I, I, I feel as though it is part of my duty with this show to preserve history to some degree, but uh, it's also just sort of fun. So thanks for that. And uh, wow, that's uh, quite a bit of a backlog on the emails there, but uh, you know, it's been a while. So uh, yeah, let's jump to, uh, to the big show. You're listening to the upper memory block podcast. Time for. Okay, so you know it, it's sort of interesting uh, with one of those last emails talking about sort of the uh, the cross of uh, business and uh, and entertainment that that PCs offer. That uh, you know that sort of fits with with what I'm covering this time around because this time around I'm covering a series that you know most of us have probably all heard of, if not actually played, and that's the Lynx series, and. You know, this is this is sort of an interesting one as as Lynx is is a much more prolific series than I'd originally thought. Uh, it's either a, depending on how you count it, it's either a series of five, seven, or over twenty games with just as many expansions. Uh, you know, depending on how you you classify uh, the series. In fact, the first game in the series, sort of the first game that that sort of forms the roots of the series isn't even called links at all but uh it is called leaderboard golf and that came out for the commodore 64 not even the pc in 1984 so with that confusing start let's let's get down to the genre i think this is another first for the show even after uh, all this time i'm finally covering a proper sports game so if it isn't all that obvious, a sports game is a game which models the practice of either a particular sport or a set of sports. Uh, in some ways, sports are really ideal to model in a simulation. Uh, sports tend to have very defined sets of rules. They tend to have very defined orders of play. They tend to have logical stopping points, sets of mechanics, statistics to base computer models on, all kinds of stuff that make uh, you know making a, a, a video game a lot more straightforward, if you will. Uh, because of this, the sports genre is actually one of the oldest genres around. Uh, heck, even a non-sports fan like me has memories of playing, you know, Dr. J versus Larry Bird on my Apple II. Um, with this long history, much like other genres, many variations of the sports game have cropped up. Uh, firstly, some games focus more on fast-paced action. Uh, these are classified more sort of in the arcade vein. Uh, those that focus more on realism tend to fall in the simulation end of the sports genre. And uh, this is what we're really focusing on today. Of course, even within this simulation end of the spectrum, there's, there's variances. Some sports simulations focus higher level on more managerial aspects of the game, like, you know, running a sports league and developing an effective team. Um, you know, this is sort of the video game equivalent to fantasy sports. The other angle is a detailed and as close to life as possible simulation of the actual act of playing the sport itself. Uh, these types of games tend to be faced with uh, one pretty big common challenge, and that is translating what is essentially a purely physical and at times pretty complicated set of actions like kicking balls, using bats, clubs, or sticks, controlling an entire team of players, and all things like that, uh, You know, really translating that and distilling it down into a comprehensible 
set of controls. Now, over time, each sport has sort of settled into a fairly standard control setup. But uh, keep in mind, though, being good at a sports game doesn't generally make you good at the sport itself. Uh, It's just the game's interpretation of that sport. Okay, so now onto Lynx itself and onto its story. Well, this really is a very pure simulation. There's absolutely no story here. And uh, as I'm fond of saying, though, that gives you plenty of opportunity. As we'll see in the gameplay section, Lynx does give you the ability to create a somewhat custom golfer whose golfing career is recorded in exacting detail as you play the game. So should you have the desire, the fodder for a story and for character motivation is absolutely there. Some people play games just to get good at them. Others play for other reasons. So if making up some story for your golfer makes the game a richer experience, then be my guest. Okay, let's jump into gameplay. We'll likely chat about the original leaderboard golf in the dev story, but I'll be focusing uh, uh, one game into the future on the original version of Lynx, the challenge of golf. So starting up the game, you're greeted by some some pretty slick, as usual, access software, standard digital sound, uh, either via your sound card or their patented real sound audio system via the PC speaker. If you want to hear more about real sound, go jump back to my Tex Murphy episode. I talked about it pretty uh pretty good detail there uh you are now faced with a main menu and a few options if this is your first time in as it was for me i would strongly recommend the practice mode this allows you to go to one of two areas firstly the driving range where you can practice your big shots with your big clubs the other option is to work on your short game at the chipping and putting green here you can practice chipping which are short shots to get the ball quickly onto the green And uh, of course, putting, which is generally how you get the ball into the hole to progress through the course. Now, the reason I say you really should practice is because, at least in my opinion, as I said, sort of in the genre section, the controls are a little bit less than intuitive. Uh, you, You recall that, you know, like I just said, translating highly complex, purely physical actions into actions you can perform on a keyboard or mouse, uh... A golf swing, you know, is not something that translates very well. On top of that, there's different types of swings. Are you driving? Are you pitching? Are you chipping? Are you putting? I mean, these are all different swings with different use cases and different mechanics to them. So swinging is accomplished via a swing button and an indicator. The swing button sits in the middle of the game's control panel, which takes up kind of the bottom, you know, usual bottom third or fourth of the screen. Above the control panel is a large main view area, which uh, shows a current view of the course from your golfer's perspective, along with an over-the-shoulder view of said golfer ready to swing it up. Now, surrounding the swing button, you'll see a C-shaped meter with some lines in it. Uh, This is the swing indicator. So, say we're sitting on the driving range. Uh, This is the swing mode, which you'll spend the bulk of your time in. So, to do a proper drive, you should first figure out how far you want to hit. This is determined primarily by which golf club you decide to hit the ball with. So in links, your golf bag can contain up to 14 different clubs, and you can choose out of a total of 20 clubs split into four categories. Each club hits for a certain average distance, which is measured based on a set of ideal conditions. On top of this average distance, each club hits with a certain shot profile consisting of some ratio of 
distance traveled to loft. And to describe loft, that is really how high off the ground uh, your ball is going to travel. So we start off with our drivers. These clubs give the most horizontal distance, but with the lowest loft. So that is when you hit with a driver, usually right off the tee, the ball will go very, very, very far, but it'll go with a very shallow arc. It also, because of that kind of shallow arc and projectile motion and physics and all that noise, when it hits the ground, it's also going to roll for some uh, distance. So you have the option of selecting two different drivers, D1 and D2, with D1 having the longest shot distance of any other club. Uh, D2 gives a little bit more height for a bit less distance. Next, we have the woods, ranging from the two wood to the seven wood. Again, as the numbers get bigger, the club face gets more angled, meaning the ball will be hit with a higher loft. The head of the wood clubs are lighter than the drivers, imparting less transfer of kinetic energy into the ball, again, making the ball travel less distance. After the woods, we have the irons ranging from the one iron to the nine iron. Uh, here's there's some overlap. So the lower numbered irons will hit for the same distance as higher numbered woods, though uh, potentially with a higher loft. As an example, the two iron and the five wood will hit about the same distance. As we approach the green, we have the wedges, simply irons that have a very, very high loft. These hit the ball with a very high arc which allow more precision since the higher the arc, the less the ball is going to roll on landing. So if you sort of picture like, you know, a, a, the parabola, if you will, to use some geometric terms uh, of, of a shot, you know, as that the peak of that parabola gets higher off the ground, the ball is going to fall straighter down to the ground. So when it hits the ground, it's not really going to roll. It may bounce a little for one shot and then, uh, you know, it's really going to be, it's really going to land where you hit it. Finally, as you get on the green, you get to the only club you are required 100% to have in your golf bag, which is the putter. Uh, this is used to make some precision shots to finally sink your ball. So we're on the driving range. We select a club, probably one of our drivers if we're practicing hitting off the tee. Now we aim. If you move your cursor out into the representation of the course and you left click, an aiming marker will appear. You can drag it around where you want to shoot and release. You have now successfully aimed. Hooray. To make a shot, you left-click on the swing button and you hold it. The swing indicator begins moving. If we're going for a maximum power swing, you hold the button until the indicator fills up to the yellow line, which is situated basically at uh, 12 o'clock north on the indicator. If you release beforehand, your shot will not go as far, but it'll probably be more controlled. However, if you release it after, your shot's going to have more power, but you're going to have trouble making it go where you aimed. Now, after you release... The indicator will continue to the end and then it'll bounce into reverse and start making its way back down the way it came. Your goal now is to click the mouse button just as the meter fills to the green line at the six o'clock or directly south position on the shot meter. So while the first part of the shot is called the swing, this part is called the snap. Hitting right on the money will send your shot straight and true with the trajectory only being influenced by the wind if your difficulty settings are set to... Uh, allow that. However, if you don't quite make it, your shot will either hook left or slice right, uh, depending if you clicked before or after that green line. So the swing pot process, uh, press and hold, release, and then click is the same for hitting with drivers, woods, and irons. Uh, when it comes in close for chipping, the process changes ever so slightly. Instead of winding up your shot all the way to the end of the meter, uh, about halfway off, it's not that uh, meter's now blocked indicating chipping uses quite a bit less uh, swinging power than uh, normal driving does. 
However, that same mechanic applies. You press and hold up to the 10 o'clock position on the indicator, then you release and you click when you hit the green line at the bottom. Finally, putting is different in that there is no upper yellow line. You click and hold, then release, and all that does is set the power. There's no precision or anything else involved there. Then you click the meter as it gets to the bottom line. Missing the line will cause your ball to either pull right or push left, and uh, that will also cause you to tear your hair out. <laughs> I'm personally not a fan of the short game uh, in general. You aim your shot putting in the, the same way that you do in any other shot. However, here, the lay of the land actually comes into play much more. In fact, here the lay of the land comes into play, whereas everywhere else it does not. Uh, in fact, there is an option to overlay a grid onto the course to see precisely how the terrain of the green is rolling. If it's on a slope or a hill, you need to adjust your aim and power appropriately because the ball is going to want to fight against that, uh, that slope. So now that we've practiced, we can get into an actual game. You can go into the players list and create a new golfer or simply use the default golfer. Creating a golfer allows you to set difficulty and realism level at beginner. Clubs are auto-selected for you. Swing distance is reduced and swing timing is very forgiving. Uh, the wind is also not taken into account at all. At the amateur level, you choose your clubs. Distance is reduced 10% instead of 20%. And uh, swim, swing timing is still not as tough as it could be. And the wind does affect your shots. Finally, at professional, swing distance is maximized and shot timing is critical. Uh, you can also select the color of your tee box and which 14 of 20 clubs you want to use in your, uh, in your bag. So once you set up your dude, you're good to go. Out of the box, the game comes with a single 36-hole course, the Torrey Pines course located in San Diego, California. This course sports 36 holes played in two sets of 18, either the front or the back, uh, 18. Each hole is very realistically rendered, complete with accurate distances, topography, vegetation, greens, hazards, all that. As your golfer plays through, he starts to amass stats and a play record. Now, this is real golf, so you can just as easily get a hole-in-one as hit a tree or uh, land a shot directly into a sand trap or into uh, water. Adjusting your aim and your power to compensate for wind is certainly a challenge as well, and as frustrating as golf can be, this game does make some allowances for fun and gives you many chances to retry shots or adjust the lay of the ball at the cost of some strokes. Of course, if, uh, you know, of course your, your goal, your real goal, since this is golf is to come in at the end of your 18 holes with as low a score as absolutely possible. Each hole has what is referred to as a par. That is the standard number of shots one would be expected to take to complete a hole. So a par four would take a highly skilled golfer four shots or less to get the ball in the hole. Every shot you take above par increases your score by one. Each ball you sink under par reduces your score by one, which, though it sounds counterintuitive, actually means you're winning. So as the game matured, uh, many, many course packs were released, uh, adding eight new courses over the two years of uh, the original game's main life cycle. The first sequel, Lynx 386, came out in 1992, along with additional course packs. We'll talk about this more in dev story. However, it's important to note that all the course packs that are purchased for the original Lynx were actually compatible with the sequel after going through a migration process which upgraded the original graphics and and all of that noise pretty cool huh you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for
Okay, so what does it take to run Lynx? Well, like many games of this era, technically, at the very least, it didn't take much. To play Lynx, all the box and the manual said you needed was an 8088 or 8086 processor, DOS 2, and 640K of RAM. Now, that said, these are absolutely minimum specs. The game will run, it will play, but there's certainly one bottleneck here, and that is graphics. Now, Lynx ran in MCGA or VGA 256 colors at 320 by 200 graphics mode only. Unlike other games of the time, which could fall back to EGA 16 color, CGA 4 color, and even monochrome, VGA was it for Lynx. We'll talk about this more in dev story, but the course graphics in Lynx are highly detailed, actually insanely detailed for the time that uh, the game came out. So, well, it says you can run this on any PC with VGA graphics. It would be nearly unplayable. In a PC Magazine review, the tester was running on an IBM AT with a 12 MHz 286 powering it. Drawing a screen on that machine took upwards of 37 seconds. On a different 286 with some extended memory, it took 17 seconds to load the same view. Of course, this was possible because some of the graphics and sound data could be preloaded into their extended memory instead of being pulled from the infinitely slower disk. If I had a bit more time and a bit less to say in this particular episode, I'd probably dive into EMS and XMS because I'm not entirely sure I've discussed them all that much, but uh, we'll have to save that for another day. Um, you know, the game certainly had sound as well, though not a ton, to be fair. Musically, there's a single intro song. You've heard it. <laughs> the rest of the sound is what you expect from a golf game. Lots of ambient ocean waves, birds chirping, and of course, the sounds of golf. Clubs hitting balls, balls hitting trees, even an irritating caddy giving us some words of encouragement. Uh, while the game supported the usual suspects of sound hardware, the real gem was, again, uh, for those who are lacking dedicated hardware, uh, as we've discussed before, Lynx uses Access Software's unique real sound system, which was able to play digital sound samples through the PC speaker by some incredible hackery and trickery. Remember, the PC speaker was a very simple device that could play a square tooth wave. That is, it could hold two tones, a low and a high. However, by doing some funky stuff with like the voltage to the speaker, more complex sounds could be produced. Real sound was really kind of was the pinnacle of this. Uh, but it never really took off since dedicated sound hardware became popular and affordable with the AdLib and the Sound Blaster. Again, if you want a more detailed uh, rundown of real sound, please go check out my Tex Murphy episode. That's where I really dive into that. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, and 40-odd minutes into the show, it's time for Dev Story. So... Lynx comes from the mind of brothers Bruce and Roger Carver. The story starts with Bruce, an industrial engineer who had some minor exposure to computers and programming through, you know, one of his previous jobs. Well, around 1982, he convinced his wife that it would be a good idea to invest in the newly released Commodore 64. And reportedly, he actually purchased uh, one of the first ones in the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, the Carvers lived in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. He bought his first computer from a local computer store called Computers Plus, run by another man named Steve Witzel. With his new acquisition, he dove deep into the innards of the Commodore 64, learning how to program for it. Now, this was the uh, 
But early days of the machine, so resources for learning how to program for it were, were pretty much non-existent, or at least few and far between. Really, all he had was some thin documentation from the manufacturer. Uh, however, Steve, the owner of the computer store, seemed to be a decent resource for information. So Bruce, Bruce found himself there pretty often, uh, speaking and eventually forming a bit of a relationship with, uh, with Steve. One day, Bruce came in with a simple sprite editing program. Steve looked at it, and after a few comments, told Bruce that, you know what, with some work, he'd be willing to sell the sprite uh, creation program on his, uh, on his, because it's the internet, in, because it's a building, his store. Bruce went off and did so, and, uh, and Sprite Master, as they called it, actually did start selling, and this began a business relationship. Bruce uh, kept his day job, but he would develop more and more software in his spare time, and Steve would sell it. As time went on, Bruce's utilities and his games were, were selling to the point that Steve was supporting him in an actual, actual sizable software distribution network. Uh, Bruce realized that he had something here. His first program, that sprite editor, like I said, called Sprite Master, was, was selling very, very well. Uh, he'd also figured out some tricks uh, f- from the, of the C64 uh, to enable the capability to create multicolored sprites. Uh, and that, though it may sound straightforward, wasn't immediately obvious uh, it wasn't really immediately obvious how to do that in the C64, so so it was very easy to make you know these different little graphical sprites that were one color. So I'd make a red sprite and a blue sprite and a green sprite and whatever. But making a sprite that had multiple colors actually did take a bit more uh, work. So you know that really was a selling point of his program, Sprite Master. Uh, his first actual game that was called Neutral Zone was a Star Trek-inspired shooter, and, and it also was selling quite well using the multicolored sprites built in Sprite Master. So finally, because his stuff was, was selling, he decided to leave his day job, his engineering job. However, he pitched an idea to the company, Red Engineering, that he was working for. For some investment in his new software company, uh, which he and some of his friends had named Access Software, he asked to use some of Red Engineering's resources to get himself off the ground. Uh, They agreed, and they set him up with some office space and some administrative help. One bit of that administrative help came in the form of one of the company's accountants named Chris Jones. Now, Jones was brought in to do Access Software's taxes. However, he was immediately taken with Bruce's work. Now, Chris wasn't really a technical guy, but he did have tons of ideas. The two decided to put their heads together and plan the company's next game, uh, which was a World War II action game named Beachhead. Again, Beachhead was a greatly successful game and not only saw success in the U.S., but also was Access's first game distributed in Europe through uh, a publisher called U.S. Gold. Over time, the company would release two more military action games, uh, and in the process of doing that, Chris and Bruce uh, brought on Bruce's younger brother, Roger, who was actually a, a simulator, I believe a flight simulator programmer for the U.S. Navy. So the, he really brought in some programming chops. The team pulled out all the stops um, for these two games, especially for uh, the second one of them, uh, the follow-up to Beachhead named aptly Beachhead 2, The Dictator Strikes Back. Uh, in Beachhead 2, they incorporated things like digital speech, inspired by, uh, you know, Impossible Mission. Stay a while, stay forever. 
Uh, and you know, that, that digital speech process that they used, uh, became the beginnings of Access's real sound system. They also filmed themselves at a local park and, uh, took that footage and traced it to create uh, the intro animation for, uh, for Beachhead 2. Now, despite all these technical innovations, Beachhead 2 was the third in a row of military action games. The gameplay was somewhat varied. The technology was good for the time of the platform, but the sales were just sort of okay. The team needed to change things up. Uh, Inspired by some of their competition, they decided to go down the path of a sports challenge game, which they would name Leaderboard. Now, Leaderboard was to be a set of four sports challenges, baseball, soccer, golf, and something else that we don't know about. Now, these would not be full simulations. Uh, baseball was was really just supposed to be a home run challenge. Soccer was goal kicks. Golf and, and golf was supposed to be sort of like a closest to the pin driving range kind of thing. Uh, Roger was, was a pretty good golfer, so they decided to jump into that golf sim uh, first. Heck, it seems as though if he was a good batter, they'd have gone a different route and, uh, you know, this story would be very different, but they went with golf and uh, we are where we are. So as they built out this uh, this simple golf mini game, it began to grow into something more. Turns out that Roger had honed some of his uh, his physics skills on uh, on a bowling game. And uh, this is where he had sort of, you know, first dipped his toes into mapping physics of of balls moving over surfaces, balls moving through the air, and really the sort of like physics of projectile motion. Um, he then added on flight physics uh, in their golf game. So they also, you know, so that that really made uh, the physics of the game very, very complex and very realistic. Now they also, from a creative side, took this film experience that they had done with Beachhead Two. And recorded Roger, who again was a half-decent golfer, uh, doing golf swings against a brick wall. They then traced, you know, some of those, I think it was every fourth frame, into Sprite Master. And boom, you had a smoothly animated golfer hitting a golf ball with realistic physics, and it felt great. This closest to the pin game was fun. The mechanics of swinging swinging were very natural feeling to them and very enjoyable. And uh, so enjoyable, in fact, that they decided... They should focus on building this thing out as a full-fledged golf simulator, and they dropped the rest of the events to the wayside. Now, all this swinging and, and cool physics was happening against a static background, which, uh, you know, that, that was fine for a proof of concept. However, the fun of golf is obviously playing on different courses. Now, the Commodore 64 was a great machine, but it definitely was not up to the task of displaying fully rendered 3D landscapes with all the usual trappings of golf. So the Access team took, you know, the the theory, the concept of the game of golf and the concept of a golf course, and they distilled it down to something that could be loaded into the 64K of memory that the Commodore 64 took its name from. So what does this mean? That means that there were basically three types of terrain in this initial form of the game. Uh, an empty course was, uh, was basically like a, a blank Bob Ross painting. It contained only water from that empty canvas. They would build out the land of each course to do this. They built up about 30 different shapes representing different terrain configurations. And these shapes could be layered together and overlaid and mushed together in different combinations up to seven at a time on the water, forming a type of uh, golf course island. 
if your ball hit one of the shapes, it was on land. If it didn't, it was in a water hazard. And finally, the green was a 64-foot circle surrounding the hole. The green was the only place on the course that had any concept of elevation changes attached to it. So three types of terrain, water, land, green. So this is a really great example of how you model a complex system in a very resource-constrained environment. You abstract it, you remove everything that isn't needed at the core of the experience. So no elevation changes on the course, no sand traps, no trees, no rough, no fairway, just land, water, green, and hole. And that is, and that is the, the simple model of golf that the team defined with leaderboard. In fact, this concept, this concept of laying predefined shapes together was really a precursor to modern concepts of object-oriented programming, code reuse, etc., etc. So now, instead of storing a massive, detailed course map in memory, you'd simply store references to which seven shapes you were using and how they were laid out in relation to one another. It really was incredibly clever, and, and in fact, the programmer in me is sort of smiling at the elegant simplicity of, of this idea. So the next step was the controls. This is something we've talked about a couple times already, but how the heck do you emulate a golf swing, a very physical, very technical, and full body motion to you know something you can do with the controls you have at your fingertips on a computer? Well, they came up with uh, this three-click system that uh, I just described. However, in this case, it wasn't a click of the mouse, but it was a click on the C64's joystick. Uh, as the ball is hit, its flight characteristics are calculated and the effective wind that the wind may or may not have on it. Now, the intention was not to ship such a cutdown game, but with the mediocre performance of Beachhead 2, they needed to make some cash. So Leaderboard went out the door, as is, in 1986, to huge acclaim. Despite its limitations, the amazing gameplay was very well received. This led to a course pack soon after, and then uh, later in the same year, a new game, Executive Leaderboard. This version laid in trees and sand traps. World-class leaderboard released in 1987 with even more features such as fairways, roughs, and different kinds of trees. Finally, a, cor a course disc uh, released in 1988 with uh, approximations of a bunch of real-world golf courses. So with all this success, the company obviously looked forward, uh, wanted to look forward. The C64, it was a great platform, but it was getting old. The team was hesitant to move over, though, since, uh, you know, the PC did offer more power and more memory, but graphically, it really only supported 16 colors. And, uh, you know, Bruce, he was the source of this hesitancy. Steve, who'd long since closed down his computer store and joined up Access full time, convinced Bruce that they should bite the bullet. But instead of going on to, you know, the 16 colors that everyone was already doing, which wasn't really sort of a huge leap over the C64, they should just bite the bullet and go straight to 256. They should make a VGA-only game and make everybody know that they were the first people to do it. And this VGA-only game would be Lynx, the challenge of golf. So they'd taken all they learned in leaderboard and they up-resed it. You know, the goal in the development of Lynx was incredible realism. Bruce's goal with the game was to get mapped terrain within two inches of what it looked like on a real-world course. So to start, they selected the Torrey Pines Championship course in San Diego, and they swarmed the place. They took full video of the course. They took 500 photos, landscape, aerial, 
all kinds of stuff. Uh, these photos that they took, or at least parts of them, were digitized and laid into the game's resources. They then extended out the terrain mapping features from leaderboard into ACE, into uh, the system that we recognize as links. When you enter the course, uh, you don't just enter a single island hole <laughs> like, uh, like you do in leaderboard. You're on Torrey Pines. The terrain draws in in layers. It starts with the backdrop, and in effect, it builds out the visual pieces of the course in front of you one at a time. You know, as I mentioned, on a slower machine, this could take some time, and this is where you really see the detail and the immersion. So as an example, if you look uh, at the aerial view of Torrey Pines, hole one and hole six are right next to each other. So in the actual game, if you hook your shot too far over, your ball doesn't like fall into an abyss or hit a fake wall or something. It actually just lands on the terrain of hole six. And at this time, this was unheard of. In fact, Lynx contained over 700 kilobytes of course data on the original discs. That was 10 times more than any other golf game at the time and would not even be remotely possible on uh, the C64 that were its creator's roots. Uh, the game, again, also had some rudimentary sound. Nothing to write home about. But Lynx released in, 19, uh, in 1990 again to great accolades. The only complaints were that you know the game was VGA only, and uh, also the monster machine needed to run it you know reasonably well. It was really you know one of those benchmarking sort of games. It was the crisis of its day. Uh, if you got a hot new rig, <laughs> as boring as it sounds, this golf game was the game you used to show it off. Access would release a number of course discs for Lynx over the next few years, and this of course led us to Lynx 386. In 1992, again, an upgrade, the 386 in the title spoke to the recommended system requirements and up to the visual fidelity from VGA to Super VGA at 800 by 600 and 256 colors. Not to worry, though, the team included upgrade functionality. So, you know, all those course packs that you bought for the original games could be up-resed to work in the new game. In 1997, 1998, and 1999 brought links into the Windows world with various versions of Lynx LS that continued to top the heap of golf sims specifically and sports sims in general. Now, there's an odd divergence here. Microsoft bought Access Software in 1999. However, back in 1994, Microsoft licensed Lynx and ported it to Windows 3.1, as uh, they called it Microsoft Golf. Uh both series had parallel releases until 1999 when Lynx was brought under the Microsoft Game Studios umbrella. Uh, releases continued until 2003, and then Microsoft spun off the group and sold them to Take-Two Interactive, where they would release other golf games like Top Spin Golf and uh, other things like that. Take-Two killed the studio, which they had named IndieBuilt in 2006. These days, though, some of the core team, including Roger, I'm not sure Chris anymore because he went off to do more Tex Murphy, but uh, you know, a lot of the programmers and, and core group still actually work on golf games. Now, they started a company called True Golf and make very high-end, very expensive physical golf sims where, you know, those ones where you stand in front of a massive screen and you hit a real ball with a real club. Uh, the company appears to still be going strong to get it today. And uh, the team's legacy with Lynx is very prominently displayed on their site. Uh, it seems they have truly found their passion. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. 
So where can you get links today? Well, this is a little odd, but you can still officially, I think, buy links at uh, linkscountryclub.com. Uh, they purport to be the official site for the Lynx franchise, though, I don't know, I'm a little bit dubious about the whole thing. The site looks super old, but there are help articles there as recent as 2018. Apparently, you could buy the game and all its add-ons course, all its add-on courses. I guess that's uh, like Lynx LS 2003 or Lynx 2003. Uh, you could buy it all for $14.95 US, so I don't know. I think it's legit. Your mileage may vary. If someone is sure that it's legit, please feel free to let me know. But uh, yeah, anyways. So that's that. And uh, let's jump into our second set of emails. All right. So continuing on from our first set of emails, we roll into the second part of Pat's email. And he continues on. I think all these factors contributed to perhaps the proliferation of the most business person oriented entertainment product of the time, the golf game. I remember first encountering a golf game on a Macintosh in a classroom in primary school. I think it was world-class leaderboard. Later, a friend's father purchased Jack Nicholas golf and course design signature edition. And eventually I got Jack Nicholas four bundled in a box of games. I never played links, but it was the standard for golf games. And I was always aware of it. I have always been impressed by the way golf games got their fundamental gameplay mechanics settled so early in their life, a mechanic which has changed only marginally over the years. The graphics of golf games in the early 90s, and especially the digitized actors and the drawing and construction of a player's view before every shot, speaks to me of the technological optimism of the time. Ever since, I've thought of the grid which descends over the course to show the contours of the ground as the very epitome of the projection of digital power into the real world. Animating the grid is, to me, a more powerful visual metaphor than Neo and the Matrix turning the world to code. I'm currently undertaking my doctorate in, the, in part on the philosophy of technology. This is a mental image to which I refer a lot. But I also think that this use is an ostentatious display of processing power, simulation-like detail, and place in a market where international business machines was almost a generic term for personal computer that means golf games fit perfectly in a time when, at least for some wealthy, influential people, business and leisure were inextricably linked. Golf blurs the line. It makes sense golf games would as well. I sometimes think about playing a round or two, but these days it is more likely that I would play with real clubs and balls and fairways because the golf computer game seems, to me, far less of a phenomenon than it was at the dawn of the 90s. Perhaps it is because, notwithstanding the current president of the U.S., we have moved on. Golf is still going strong, but it is no longer speaks to our culture in the way it once did. Cheers, Pat. Wow. Well, thank you, Pat. And you know that is a a, a well put together. Your your whole email, frankly, both parts of it were very well put together. But um, you know, I I think you're right. Like, you know, I have some friends that that play golf, and you know, golf obviously was you know the the language, the sport of business. That's where you know deals were made, and blah 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 blah. But um, you know, I don't think that's as true. As it once was, I think, you know, closing the big deal over a round of golf, the company golf tournament, all that stuff is sort of slipping into a bygone era. I think at this point, you know, we're more likely or just as likely to have, you know, a company sporting day, like a ski event or bike race or, you know, a company League of Legends tournament or, uh, you know, Halo event or, or something like that. 
versus, you know, going out to the golf course. And, um, it is interesting and it is also interesting and not surprising that, you know, the golf game would be this thing that was so well-defined so quickly because I think, you know, I think if, if you would talk to any person who is older than, you know, me or, you know, was sort of in the business world in the eighties and the nineties and you asked them if they'd ever play a video game, they'd probably scoff at you. But then you'd ask them if they'd ever played links and they go, Oh, well, of course I have, but that's not a game, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I just think it's very interesting how people can frame things if they, if they really want to. So thanks again very much for that, Pat. Next up, my good buddy, Brian demodulated writes, hi, Joe and fellow blockers. I feel like I've said this point before. Was it on your podcast? At the risk of repeating myself, I've always loved watching the pretty scenery in links as it is gradually drawn into the screen element by element. Playing this game on a modern system tends to draw the scene instantly. This might be the only game I ever played where I wished my computer was slower. For Brian. Yeah, and you know, you're, you're right, Brian. And uh, I mean, if you jump into my... Uh, you know, my YouTube playthroughs, I'm just playing it in DOSBox with pretty much the standard, uh, the standard settings and it draws in relatively quickly. I mean, I, I think it would be sort of, you have to be in a state of mind to be okay with, you know, a scene and it's not just like a course, it's every scene taking, you know, on that 286 taking 37 seconds. So you're looking at like 37 seconds is almost 40 seconds, which is almost a minute. So it's basically like you take a shot <laughs> And then you have to wait a minute until you can take your next shot. And that minute isn't because like you're watching storyline or whatever. It's because the game is loading and processing. I think for a while, it's pretty cool to sort of see everything drawing in. And, you know, to be fair, you know, Lynx does all this stuff where it, where it draws in the scene kind of as fast as it can, but still very slowly. But a lot of games actually did do that. So all, all these sort of like vector art based games. So if you go back to not so much like obviously later Sierra games, but the original AGI Sierra games, they did do that same thing. They drew in the whole screen. They just did it incredibly fast. Again, mostly because I think, you know, they were just doing outlines and fills of very basic colors, especially in, you know, CGA and EGA. But, uh, you know, if you slow that down, I think there's a, a Twitter account that does do that. It slows down the drawing in of, uh, of AGI scenes and it, it works the same way. It writes in the outline, fills in the blocks, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this just sort of exposes that for, uh, as, I don't know if I want to call it a feature of the game, but I think as fans and, uh, you know, as Pat just said, it does sort of give you that concept of, hey, we're creating a 3D world. And we're filling it in and this is how it fills in. This is what a computer can do. And maybe that wasn't the intention of the access guys, but I do think that, you know, when you see something like that on TV, that is something that is a way that they sort of represent a powerful computer creating this model and creating wireframes and then filling in the wireframes with detail and, and things like that. So very, very cool. Okay. So that is it for email. Let's get down to the main event. So, does Lynx hold up today? Well, it sure does, if you like golf, that is. I played the game. The controls took me a while to, I don't want to say get used to, because like, I'm aware of these of this golf control 
Like I, I even remember back on my NES, you know, I played like Nintendo golf and it was basically the same thing. It was, you know, a click, a click and a click, hold, click, click kind of a thing. So I've, I've played this a lot. It's been a really long time and it did take me quite a, a few holes. I want to say three or four holes to really get the hang of the controls again. And, uh, you know, playing through was, was fun for me, but to be honest, not really a golf fan. And I bounced off it about the same way that I did when I played Lynx 386 as a kid. It's fun for a few courses, but I just find it gets sort of repetitive for me. That doesn't mean you won't like it. It just means that I don't really love golf. That said, from a graphical perspective, as we've talked about, this series is ridiculous. If I remember anything about Lynx, anything at all, it's always how that terrain draws itself in looks as photorealistic as possible, could given the technology of the time. And from that angle, I can absolutely appreciate it. Uh, There's a reason this series is so long running and also why the team that built it is still making golf games to this day. They got it right the first time and they kept getting it right for 30 years. So if you have any interest in playing golf on a computer, go play Lynx. It's the de facto standard. I mean, you sort of have to. And if you haven't yet, I don't know, you probably just don't want to (laughs) because, you know, it's been so prolific for so long. So that is that. As I said at the top of the show, apologies for the delay on getting this one out. Really long story. If you ever meet me in real life and buy me a drink, I will regale you with parts of it. Uh, That said, as always, uh, thanks for hanging in with me when these little hiatuses tend to crop up since, uh, you know, the UN baby showed up planning to get back on track moving forward and to do that we're going to jump back into an old standby because i do have some work stuff coming up so i'm going to be out and about but uh an adventure game is always a good one to cover and i haven't hit lucasarts in a while so we are going to hit a lucasarts adventure game but one that i have not played myself before zach mccracken and the alien mind benters you are welcome daniel uh as always You can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, support me over at patreon.com slash umbcast. That's really helping me keep things things afloat over here. Uh, Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And you can find me over on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where I put up videos of my game research session. And I I guess the last thing that I finished up was a complete and full playthrough of the original Fallout. Uh, I think in the next few weeks, maybe into uh, the end of March, I'm going to start something else up. I haven't quite figured out what that's going to be, but uh, I really do enjoy putting stuff up on the YouTube channel. And uh, you guys seem to like it too. So I will continue doing that so subscribe to the show on itunes stream us live at stitcher radio drop me a, a an itunes review like i said i really like uh reading those out and seeing them if i can so that is that and i will see you next time with zach mccracken here in the upper memory block battle control terminated You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today 
at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join us.